I, I would really like to be to not have to need other people to say nice things about me today because I want to just know in the core of my being that with the one that matters most, <laughs> the voice that matters most, I'm hearing it from you, that I'm lovable and, and that you really do care about me and you're going to take care of me and you're going to provide what I really need, maybe not some of the stuff that I think I might need but don't. And there's nothing I have to prove today to myself or to anybody else. But I can just be in this day and I can just be who I am. And that is 100% good with you. And if that's true, then maybe it can be 100% good with me. <laughs> Jerome Daly is an executive coach with specialties in culture crafting, communication and conflict, self-leadership and team development. He's the founder and director of Thrive Nine Solutions, and he also helped found and lead Christian Coaching Magazine and has authored a bunch of books, including his newest one called Gravitas, The Monastic Rhythms of Healthy Leadership. Man, I love this conversation with Jerome because it was like he was speaking my language especially in the world of coronavirus and trying to figure out self-care. Uh, I was digging everything he was saying. Hope you enjoy this conversation with Jerome Daly. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to This Good Word. I'm Steve Weens, your host. As always, I'm here today with Jerome Daly, author of the book Gravitas, The Monastic Rhythms of Healthy Leadership. Jerome, thanks so much for coming on the show. I'm so excited to be here, Steve. Well, as I was telling before, our mutual friend Dave Zimmerman, um, who really is a sweetheart, sent me the manuscript, and it, it really was a time where I, I didn't know, like, ah, I don't know if I can read it. And so I was going to kind of give it a cursory <laughs> glance and then maybe say, I just don't have time. But I got into it, and I loved it. I love the framework that you're using with with leaders, and I think I, I am so drawn these days to contemplative, mystical uh, monastic rhythms and practices in my own life. So I can't wait to dive in. Um, so first, could you, could you tell us a little bit of your, your background? Like what kind of spiritual background do you have and sort of what, um, you know, give us the thumbnail sketch of, uh, what has helped you become who you are today? Well, what a great question. Uh, so, okay. Probably the most defining early experience was growing up as a pastor's kid mm -hmm. in in uh southeast uh north carolina and that was mostly a good experience um always a little bit weird experience for those who are pks will understand that but uh you know i can never really remember a time when god wasn't pretty central in my life and that's that's a real gift and i have a a lot to give thanks for with my family and my upbringing. Our, our church background was non-denominational, kind of back before non-denominational was a thing. And uh, so we were really actually sort of weird at the time. But, <laughs> you know, um, a fairly traditional theology, a charismatic bent, uh, not charismaniac, uh, uh, but, but uh, definitely sort of informed by that experience and that perspective. Um, yeah, kind of embracing contemporary worship very early on. And so that's really the 
the environment that I grew up in and really found my own relationship with Christ. So that God really snagged my heart at a fairly early age and let me know that that was going to be kind of the core of who I am and the journey that I would be on. So uh, all that led to, oh, well, I'll say when I was 13, I had a bit of a, an encounter with God, just quiet, simple, nothing very mystical, but but a sense of God's presence and a sense that God was calling me, as I remember it, Steve, yeah. it was something along this line of, you're supposed to know me and help other people know me and help other people figure out where they fit in the world. Mm. And the only word I had for that at the time was pastor, you know, yeah, pastor's yeah. So I just figured that that's what I was supposed to do. Uh, my dad, as a pastor, encouraged me to actually start with business school. So I did that. He felt, you know, church, there's a definitely a business component to pastoring and, and running a, a church, an organized church. So, um, yeah, I kind of cut my teeth cut on, on that. But always the heart was pastoral. Spent a few years in, just several years in banking and in real estate, uh, just, you know, entry level, kind of earning your <laughs> yeah, pay, yeah. so to speak. And then uh, went to seminary and met my wife, Kelly, there. Uh, went on staff with my father's church that was a pretty new plant at that time. Uh, stayed on staff there for nine, well, after married, nine years. I guess it was, yeah, 10 or 11 years total there on staff. And then uh, some life changes that were sort of described in my very first book, Soul Space, took us out to Colorado Springs. And we spent a couple of years there. That's where I figured it, or learned at the age of 35 that I had this love affair with writing. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> so I... Um, I started in, I, it was a bit of a sabbatical time, and I felt like for the first time I really had something to say yeah. that had come out of the last 10 years of my experience as a pastor, just the really thumbnail there, just feeling like the, the further I want, went on in, in, in ministry, the more I had just gotten onto this gerbil wheel of do more, do it yeah. faster, do it better, do it shinier, you know, and, and <laughs> so the, the legacy of 10 years of being a pastor was... My marriage was less healthy, yeah. <laughs> felt like le more of a failure as a parent, and I felt like my own spiritual relationship with God was just getting more and more shallow. So, wow, God really had to pull me out into kind of this healing space to right-size that, and, and that became kind of uh, the topic of that first book and really kind of the trajectory of the rest of my journey. Yeah, and can, can I just, uh, can I ask a follow-up question there? Because I think that's such a fascinating thing that you just said, that 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 the work of ministry after 10 years, as you took a look at your life, and I imagine it was sort of whatever led you to take a sober look, you know, and my marriage is not as healthy, my I'm not the dad I want to be. And I, because I, I've been a pastor uh, for 20, 25 years, and I, I, I know pastors, and typically what you're going to think is, I must be doing it wrong. It, you know, mm. it, like it's not, it's not, wow, this ministry life, that's not sustainable for anybody. 
you know what I mean? Like, like we typically, we typically say I have to do better disciplines, better this, better that versus man, is something wrong with the system that, that is oh. right. So can you go there? Like, like, are you sure? <laughs> yeah, please do. No, I'm begging you to go there. Oh man. Uh, I, I would love to just have an hour literally just yeah. to talk about that because I have such a, such a heart now for pastors. I mean, I really, really do. I love nothing more than when I get to coach a pastor or just befriend a pastor. And because I, I know some of the joy and the pain that's wrapped up in that world. Yeah. And you kind of hinted at it. I don't think that, I don't think pastoring is a innately soul friendly occupation, which is kind of a crazy thing to say. But I do think there are a lot of stresses, huge amounts of expectations. The work is literally never done. And even a lot of what I'm describing around the, the, the need for gravitas, you know, comes out of and is informed by that experience. Because right. whether you are leading a church or leading a business, there tends to be this expectation for you to uh, go super wide and not very deep. Yes. I mean, they, they want you to go wide and deep, but because we can't go necessarily that wide and that deep, we have to pick one. And yep. so we wide, yep. <laughs> you know, so I think there's a lot of pressure and, and uniquely in ministry. And, and unless you have been there or kind of been on uh, the backside of that curtain, folks wouldn't necessarily know that. Well, I think that's what I was so drawn to in just your immediate definition of gravitas being about going deep and not wide, because I think there's even a sense in the church as pastors is like, we all think we're doing both, you know, <laughs> we yeah. all think, because you have to go deep because that's the spiritual thing, you know, but you also have to go wide because you got to keep your job and you got to keep attracting more people and you got to, you know, keep the people you already have happy. And depending on the kind of board you have, you got to figure that out and, and, and I do think also people, and I'm 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 preaching to the choir or preaching to myself. <laughs> I think we get into ministry for all kinds of unhealthy reasons around ego, and you know, so that's sure. part of why it's not very soul friendly. So, um, yeah. what can can you give? I mean, I I touched on it very briefly, but you know, you've you've chosen this beautiful word gravitas. To, for your mm -hmm. book. Describe what what you mean by that. Well, there's kind of this whole, uh, a little bit of a mystery around the word gravitas, and that was part of the reason for using it. It kind of makes you cock your head a little bit and go, huh? Yeah. You know, what exactly is that? So I love that, that curiosity that hopefully gets evoked in the word. It's not one that we use every day. But it's, it is a word that's poignant for me, and it speaks to a sense of gravity. You can kind of see that etymological um, idea there, that there's something of weight that goes on in a person of gravitas. Uh, a word I really love is substance. Yeah. And, and I just want to, you know, super quickly draw distinction between, like, the need to be impressive. Right. Uh, or or to be like overly sober or something like that. Sometimes it can be those connotations around the word. But it comes out of a desire in, in myself, Steve, and, and in many of the leaders that I work with, that whether we articulate it or not, 
we do want to be deep. Yeah. We do want that depth to come out of us and carry a sense of spiritual significance. Um, not, not of course, being set on a, a pillar or platform or pedestal, that's the word, um, something that would distance us, but something that would hopefully evoke an equal response, this hunger, this dire, yeah, yeah, I, I want to be that rooted in Christ too, so that my words kind of carry that sense of, you, you've been hanging out with God. Right, right. <laughs> you know, so that what we do and how we show up has a heavenly influence mm-hmm. and a trend and isn't just kind of uh, being smart or witty or clever or being in charge. Yeah. Well, in the intro, you use the metaphor of a tree with roots that go way down deep. And uh, that's what I hear you say. I mean, that that's the image that comes to my mind when I hear you say those things that we, we if we're going to do this work um, of pastoring and leading people in any kind of way of the spirit or spiritual, then we do want to be rooted. We do want to be grounded and we want to be a non-anxious presence that, you know, isn't doesn't flit here and there and isn't overly, um, I don't know, like obsessive about ego <laughs> management and all that stuff. Yeah. Right. So, um, ha- okay. I, I really want to get to some of the monastic rhythms. I mean, you have eight or nine of them, but what was it that, so you were working at your dad's church for 10 or 11 years. You realized it wasn't a soul healthy place. And then I imagine you had to make the tough decision to quit and do something else. Um, t- tell us about that transition. How did that happen? Yeah, good question. And and just to clarify, it, it wasn't that the church was unhealthy. Sure. I think it was just that I was unhealthy in it. Yeah. And so most of my experience, my relationships with people, that was all really good and meaningful. Um, but... Uh, under the surface, the roots were kind of shriveling up. Uh, that that tree metaphor really does speak to it so beautifully. Uh, so the transition, well, uh, towards the end of that stint, for reasons I can't remember, we had a church consultant come through and kind of look at some of the things we were doing and how we were doing it and make some recommendations. And one of the recommendations he made, the only one that I remember, was hey, it's just kind of a a best practice to take sabbaticals periodically. And that was not part of our culture. Um, My father was uh, ex-Air Force pilot. Oh, wow. He was just kind of a, he was a go guy, you know. (laughs) We go, we don't stop, we don't hang around the, you know, this this is all about moving forward. In fact, we wouldn't, when we did retreats as a team, he wouldn't even call it a retreat. He would call it an advance. Yeah. <laughs> so that was I knew you were going to say that. I knew it. And I've heard that before. Yeah, that's great. That's great. I, oh, I know. Um, so anyway, for whatever reasons, uh, the advice was taken to heart. And I was kind of like, okay, we've been doing this for a bunch of years. Um, everybody's going to get a month and we'll just take turns. I'm not ever sure that he even took his. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, at least the, the the more senior associate did, and then I did, and I'm not even sure I got a full 30 days out of it, but I did take at least two weeks out at the beach by myself. Wow. And, and that was an awakening. 
yeah. Steve. I mean, when I, when I stepped off that gerbil wheel just for that relatively short amount of time, it was kind of like, oh, my Lord, I, I am tired, for one. Mm-hmm. And I feel driven for another. Yeah. And I'm not even sure I have slowed down enough to know I'm still on the right course. Yeah. Uh, and once I take this kind of scary pause and this terrifying amount of space where I'm not actually doing stuff, I, I'm not real sure I like what I see in my yeah. life, you know, soul yeah. and my family. And uh, so that was the beginning of the end for me. And now I stayed on another year, but that did get something moving. And wow. so... Th- was a convergence of forces in the spring of 2020. I'm sorry, tw- that's now 2000. Uh, that that just kind of set off a chain reaction. And my wife and I were at a pastors' conference, and I had just led worship, and uh, we had actually snuck away to get dinner because I hadn't eaten. And we just sat there over uh, over dinner, and she looked me in the eye and said we've got to get out of here. Wow. And I looked back at her and I said, I know. And I knew what she meant. You know, it wasn't the conference. It was kind of our, our lives. And, uh, so within, I think two days we had decided we're, we're pulling the plug. Yeah. And, I mean, we stunned everyone and mm-hmm. and we hurt some folks in the process. And I, I wish I could do it a little more gracefully than we actually did it at the time. But uh, we left, resigned my position, rented out my house, threw a bunch of stuff in a U-Haul. Uh, before that, I had pulled out a map and said, you know, back when we had maps. And I, <laughs> yeah, you know, the good days when we had maps. <laughs> I miss those days. I do. Anyway, there, there is something about the tangibility mm-hmm. of, uh, of maps and real books versus electronic and all that. We won't go there. But yeah. I pulled out this map and said, Kelly, we're going to go somewhere for a year. I don't know what we're going to do, where we're going to go. Where, where do you want to go? And uh, we had already kind of had Colorado on the brain because there was a conference I was planning to, to go to there, and I have had a long-standing love affair with mountains. And so Colorado Springs was right there on the front range. Uh, Pikes Peak was in our backyard. So it was like, sure, why not? And so we just did. Uh, it was scary and probably a little stupid. I didn't have a, a job, and I took a second mortgage on our house. And please don't anyone hear me saying this is what you should do. But I will say it was the best thing we had ever done. And that year was transformative for us. It just changed us to the core. Well, I actually love how you describe that story because it seems like it was a desperate, sometimes to to recover your own soul, a desperate move like that, you have to take a desperate move, you know, like you have to just quit. Um, and I, I appreciate you saying, you know, it's not for everybody. There's not always, it's not always the time to quit and it's not. 
But like when your wife is looking at you saying, we got to get out of here and you know exactly what she means. Um, I think it's time to go and I'm glad you did, you know? Um, and yeah. Yeah, I really am. Yeah. Looking back on it, it was a time of, it, it, it was a, it was a bit traumatic, sure. but it was a level of stuff coming to life in me and in us every month. It was, it was kind of like, Oh my Lord, this is, this is amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we're experiencing in God, what we're experiencing together. And every day was just sort of, uh, I mean, there was a lot of detox that was going on and sort of processing the last decade of our lives, our, our first decade together. We had three young children mm-hmm. were three, five and seven when we moved to Colorado. And it was such a beautiful time of being together as a family. It was almost a, a, <laughs> A, a, a virus, um, you know, scenario of being all together without any of the bad stuff. It, right. was, it was really a sweet, sweet time. And, and we were having a lot of hard conversations yeah. about what really mattered to us. I feel like if all of the beliefs and assumptions of what life was about were, were piled on a table, it was just kind of like taking our arm and sweeping it all off and saying, okay, we're putting one thing back in the middle of the table. We still believe there's a God and that he loves us and that we're his children. And we're kind of taking everything else from scratch. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I was, that sounds like a bit of a wilderness type of experience. And do you think that's what ultimately led you to embrace some of um, like the monastic way of thinking? Was it back then that you started to move into those waters? It really was. And I didn't know it at the time, Steve. I, I wouldn't have known to call it monastic or contemplative. Uh, we didn't really have any language around it. But, but absolutely. Uh, one day a week I was going to, um, we were part of a large church that had a, a, a prayer center attached to it. And there were these little prayer rooms you could rent for $5 a day. It was about an eight foot square. It had a desk, a cot, and a window, thank God, because I'm a window visual yeah. kind of guy. And, and I would spend all day there. I'd take our kids to the, uh, to the, the homeschool co-op there at the church, and I would uh, go up into this room by myself and spend the day until the kids were done with school, and I would take them home. and. Mm. Uh, this was the beginning of something. And I got to tell you, you know, that, that first day, that first week is kind of like, okay, I've, <laughs> I've read my chapter. I, I've prayed for the people and I pray. I've, I've read a, you know, a little chapter in this spiritual book and it's been 45 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So it's nine forty-five. What am I supposed to do now? Yeah. So it was, uh, it was a learning experience. And, but, but this, this rhythm, uh, of coming apart and engaging, which of course we see beautifully illustrated in the life of Jesus, yeah. you know, withdrawing and then engaging and back and forth. And, uh, that's just become so big. I can't even tell you how rooting <laughs> that is. That one thing is for me now having a, a rhythm and it really has been ever since, you know, a little bit 
it, it takes different forms in different seasons of life, but that that's a that's that's huge for me. Yeah. Well, and we're in the season of Lent right now. I don't know if you follow the rhythms of the church calendar, but I do. And Lent is always the uncomfortable season of you're in the wilderness and things aren't as comfortable as you wanted them to be. And I think the fact that we're, as a world, dealing with this pandemic, the coronavirus, um, is bizarre. I'm not saying in any way, shape, or form that God brought this. I don't believe that that's how that works. But when we find ourselves in these wilderness seasons. Um, I wonder if you could speak to, we feel the pressure to kind of press in and get lots of stuff done and control stuff, but really this is probably a season where this is a withdrawal season, right? Um, so like, how do you talk to leaders about, how do you talk to, a, like imagine you were talking to your dad, but he's not your dad, he's just a guy that shows up in your office and you're trying to help him not be such a go, go get and done guy, but to understand the value of, of withdrawing. How do you talk to people like that? <laughs> well, it's gotten a lot easier to talk to people about it right now. Right. As you mentioned, it, it does feel like this sort of an enforced sabbatical, not completely, but it's Pre- boy, pretty close. Right. It, it, we've we've hit the brakes in a big way, and uh, I am still for myself. It's it's awkward and uncomfortable. I I want to be super honest about that, just because I've been practicing these these rhythms for a long time. Doesn't give me a free pass on on the anxiety and the, the challenges around it, but I am really trying to really positioning myself, God, I, I want, I want everything you've got for me in this season. I want everything you've got for me. And I want to get outside of myself and try to really use this unique opportunity to love and care for some other folks that are feeling it super keenly. Yeah. yeah. So what would I say to a, a leader like that? I would say, man, you make the most of it. Yeah. You've been given this incredible gift right now. And uh, even, you know, just not having to do the, the weekly gig, as, as beautiful and as that is, and as vested as I am still in it, uh, this is a, there, there's a sweetness here. Yeah. This yeah. is more than a silver lining, man. This is, this is a true gift to the body of Christ and to humanity uh, if we can have the eyes to see and the ears to hear. So let's really be paying attention. Let's take this opportunity to let kind of loosen our grip on some of our beliefs and expectations about what church has to be like, should be like, what life should be like. Um, If God's rattling our cage here, and like you, I'm not saying this was initiated by God. I just know God doesn't waste anything. Right. And, and so uh, let's let's be paying attention because God's like talking. <laughs> yeah, no, I really like that. Let's be paying attention um, because God doesn't waste and God is talking to us in this for those of us that can pay attention, right? And you know, it's so fascinating because I, I told you, Jerome, I am still a pastor and I'm, I'm noticing there's a franticness among some pastors right now I'm just watching it play out. It's like they're, they're, we're about a week and a half right now as we're recording this into 
um, the coronavirus when it really got real, at least for the U.S. We're about a week and a half, maybe two weeks in now. And I see some pastors just, they're like spending all their their currency right now. Like they're they're trying to create every single online resource. Tuesday sure. night is going to be, you know, Gamblers Anonymous uh, Zoom meeting. And Wednesday night is going to be moms of kids that are ages two to two and a half. And Thursday <laughs> night, you know, and it's like, yes. uh, like I, I, I love the passion to care for people, but I also want to say this is going to last a little while. And none of us even know how to use zoom yet. And so that's going to be a two week curve, you know? And, um, and so I hear you saying, you know, pay attention, slow down, let what is be what is and don't fight it so much. Um, well, that's said beautifully, Steve, it really, that's it. That, that is it. And, and maybe we can even just kind of begin to, re-engineer our, our way of thinking about life together yeah. as, a, as a faith community. Yes. Uh, yeah, there are definitely some opportunities to do some of the same stuff online. But wow, if this is an opportunity for us to, you know, pull back on the gas mm -hmm. and uh, find a way to invest a little bit more in quiet Yes. In certain kinds of solitude, in our families, in our neighbors, <laughs> yeah. you know, that we just really have true proximity to that isn't necessarily the same slice of folks that we're in church with. Um, then, you know, what could that look like? What mm -hmm. are the invitations that God is giving to us right now? Yeah. Well, um, gosh, that's good. I, I do, we're not going to have time to get into all of them, but, but I love the structure of this book. And I think you have, gosh, is it eight? I think it's nine, nine rhythms, eight, sorry, eight rhythms. Yes. And so can we just go stability and maybe we'll get to conversion, but stability, not pushing the envelope, but feeling the love. Number one, what is stability? Number two, why did you start the book there? Sure. So just a little bit of a background. Okay. Been fascinated by the the, the monastic way of life here for the last uh, half dozen years. Kind of pretend to be a monk. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty happy that I get to live with my wife. Yeah. Uh, so the, the Benedictine tradition, and there's richness in all these different monastic traditions, you know, the Franciscan and the Jesuit and all, and they all have kind of different nuances to them. One of the things that made St. Benedict unique uh, back in the sixth century was he actually wrote stuff down. Yeah. So there was this, yeah. this, this handbook, if you were, will, for uh, what the spiritual community should look like. And if you go back and read it today, a lot of it is, is pretty dense and, and very much shaped by the ethos of that time. Some of it feels quite foreign. But if you sort of cherry pick the, the, the thrust of it, what you come up with are three driving principles. Uh, these, uh, the, these core, they, they're actually vows that the monks took when they came into the monastery. Three of them were, as you said, it starts with stability, conversion, obedience. These were vows that monks made. There was kind of a, 
trial period um, where they where they tried on the community for size. There, I forget now the exact language, but there's kind of an early vow, and then there's a, a more enduring vow, and they say, okay, yeah, we want this, and the abbot says, yeah, I think this is a good fit for you, and so they say, hey, stability, conversion, obedience, I'm in. And now what they meant by stability was <laughs> this highly geographic commitment to a monastery. And, you know, so, so some of the other monastic traditions weren't necessarily rooted in a, a building or a place. And in fact, some of them were mendicants and they would, uh, would, would travel and move where the need took them. But the Benedictines are like, I'm going to be in this building for yeah. the rest of my life. And that little plot of land out back, that's where you're going to bury me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so that was some super high stability that's particularly a stretch for us to even comprehend in our mobile society today. And, uh, and I'll just, I'll move forward for a second and then I'll come back. So their idea of conversion, we tend to think of conversion more in that kind of one time, make a decision for Christ, ask Jesus come into your heart. That's a beautiful truth. The way that they held it was more of we're embracing a lifestyle of conversion. Right. We realize that God, we, we, there's a lot of false self going on in here. Yep. And it's going to take a lifetime for me to, to kind of grow into the person that God knows me to be, that I'm, I'm hardwired to be. Uh, so there's a sense of every, every day and every experience God is shaping, God is converting part more of my heart. Right to respond to him in a more surrendered way. And then their third vow, obedience, uh, again, quite literally was taken to your obedience to the human representative of Christ, which was the, the abbot, the leader of the monastery. And there was a lot of, you know, what he says goes. Right. So I'm kind of trying to take the spirit of the law uh, out of this thing and say, what what does it mean for us to be rooted and stable in Christ? What does it mean for us to embrace a life of conversion and to really be obedient to the spirit in our lives? And where I'm going with these, or the place that I have kind of led them to in the book, in these chapters, is number one, finding our stability, not lovedness really learning how to practice being loved by God. Right. Which I never would have known to even kind of put it that way before. But I, I've discovered that my love tank leaks, and it mm. leaks fast. And I need lots of time in the presence of God just being reminded that I, I'm his beloved kid, and he's crazy about me. And I, I have this full delight and full approval that doesn't have anything to do with what I do, really. But just the fact that I'm, I'm his kid, I'm his son, I, I bear his image, and he's committed to me. And I just, I have to drink from that well every day, or I wind up not being a very good <laughs> uh, version of myself. Right. So, that's you, man. Well, let me, I, I want to read uh, from this chapter, Stability. There's this quote that I just 
well, there's three sentences put together, very short sentences, but they stop me in my tracks and I just underline them. This is so true. Um, you wrote this and I quote, let's be candid. Ours is a culture of urgency. We have an ethos of drivenness fueled by thinly veiled terror and less veiled ambition. This is how we push the envelope. Even baptizing Christian language and godly objective, ambition is still ultimately about us once we pare it down to the naked truth. Our desire to be significant and our desire to be needed. And it's like when I read that, you know, it's like that's ironically, that's what keeps us from love. And also mm. I think that's how we try to get love. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> By that ambition. That's what's behind it for me anyway. I want to be the best at this and the best at that. Because ultimately yeah. I'm I want to I want to be loved and cherished and accepted for who I am. But <laughs> you know, so so stability, ugh, <laughs> like practicing being the beloved. Yes. Ah, so what are some ways that you, I, this is not a how-to guide. I'm not saying it's a how-to guide at all. Neither are you. <laughs> but what are some ways that you are learning more and more to soak in that idea that you are the beloved? Well, man, there are a lot of spiritual practices that, uh, none of which, of course, originate with me, but have been part of the our church heritage for, you know, centuries that I share in this book. But I'll, I'll be super honest, Steve. I just this week had a bit of an aha moment um, because not only does my love tank link leak, but I am, I just forget stuff really yeah. fast. Yeah. So, I was, I just had a conversation with my wife, Kelly, and I said, you know, I, I am realizing in a fresh way that I can show up for my quiet time every day and go through this wealth of spiritual practices and sometimes still kind of show up on the other end, having really tapped into that, mm -hmm. having tapped into that face time with God, that sense of I'm okay because I am loved and I don't have to go out and try to spin a bunch of plates. You know, I'm not functioning overtly as a pastor anymore. I'll always be a pastor at heart. Um, but, but it's just as easy for me to keep trying to get people to like me yeah. and uh, uh, approval and to, you know, to, to care a little too much how many likes were on the last Facebook post, um, or, you know, just we have metrics out the wazoo now. Oh, yeah. It panders to our insecurity. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, Lord, help us. So when you ask me, what are the practices for really drinking deeply of the love of God? Mine is just super raw, and it's so unformed as to not even be something I can call a practice. I just get out of bed in the morning, uh, may say the, the, the morning prayer is part of the daily office, and, uh, but pretty quickly I'm, I'm just kind of talking out loud to God, like, Lord, I need to feel your love today. 
Yeah. yeah. Like today, not yesterday, but today, right now. You know, sometimes I'll, some days I'll pop out of bed and I'm pretty happy and enthusiastic about the day. Some days not so much. Uh, I'd say that my temperament is a little more turbulent than some. I think I need a, a lot of remedial help from God. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just, I'll just kind of talk again. I, I love talking out loud to God. Like, Lord, I just need to know that that you still love me today and, and that it doesn't depend on whether, you know, this appointment today or that interview or this client or that project I'm working on goes terribly well. Uh, I really, I really want to be free when I look into the day for things to not go well and, and that be okay. Uh, I, I would really like to be to not have to need other people to say nice things about me today because I want to just know in the core of my being yeah. that with the one that matters most, <laughs> the voice that matters most, I'm hearing it from you. Yeah. That I'm lovable. Yeah. And and that you really do care about me and you're gonna take care of me and you're gonna provide what I really need. Maybe not some of the stuff that I think I might need, but don't. And that no matter, uh, there's nothing I have to prove today to myself or to anybody else, but I can just be in this day and I can just be who I am. And that is 100% good with you. And if that's true, then maybe it can be 100% good with me. Uh, well, I mean, I hear you, um, without saying the words false self, I hear you starting to speak to, I think, what Thomas Merton and others called the false self. And you wrote about it in your chapter on conversion. And I'd like to read another paragraph. This is from conversion. And you say this, and I quote, seriously, in a matter of seconds, my stress level can go from imperceptible to red line. I'm exactly the same way. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and my false self, my false self has a well-worn rut for responding to this scenario in very personality appropriate terms. I fume and complain of the sheer injustice of it all. And Kelly is usually the one close enough to get caught in the toxic spew. She has found compassionate ways to let me know I'm entering false self world. <laughs> It's such a great paragraph, and I resonate with it so much. I mean, why is it that our the people that we love the most are are the ones that get the most toxicity when we when we go rogue? You know, when we go dark. It's just not fair. But um, but say a little bit about true self, false self, and the idea of the ongoing conversion, not just the one time thing, which is beautiful, but the ongoing conversion that's needed. Steve, I'm laughing because in, in the version of the manuscript I submitted, it actually read something like, Kelly has found more compassionate ways to tell me I'm being an ass. Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, <laughs> so, yes, boy, this, um, this struggle from false self to true self, I... I imagine that there are some souls out there that feel like they can kind of do that dance a lot more gracefully than I do. Mm. It feels often traumatic for me. And sometimes I'll 
even use the expression uh, formation trauma. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, because when we're in our false self, which is it's another way of saying when when we sin, when we are trying to meet our legitimate needs in illegitimate ways, yeah. essentially, uh, that we do cause pain for ourselves and we cause pain for other people. But I like the expression false self because it, it points to the fact that we have, we're creating a persona that isn't real. It's not true. It, it, it's not true in the sense that it doesn't really exist except in our fabrication of it. And it's not true in the sense that it doesn't line up with who we are in Christ. Right. Uh, so it is false. It is broken. It is damaging. And, uh, and we all have, as that quote said, kind of personality specific ways of showing up in our false self. And, and of course the Enneagram has become popular these days. And I, and I'm a big fan of it. I think it really speaks to the false and the true ways that we show up in the world. Uh, and, and that there are these sort of nine currents and, and themes and that we all do it in our own kind of with our own special sauce. But, but there are these drifts, these ways, these kind of typical ways of being in the world that, are noticeable because of their falseness. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm a, it's a, I'm a three, by the way. I, okay, oh, three, beautiful. Yeah, yeah. So I, my particular drift is to be oriented completely around how successful I am and how much people admire me. So there you yeah. go. It's, so it works out really, really well. Doesn't <laughs> Oh man, and you know, and that that true self version, you know, the world really needs, Yeah, you know, it, it needs your threeness coming through with all of the splendor of that particular type that gets completely hijacked yeah. when, when the false self. Yeah. So somehow we, you know, and this can be, and this is why I feel like it's, it's so helpful to talk about these things and even talk about them with some language that's not, mired in some of our biblical blindness. Um, So it was having some fresh terms to talk about this struggle because we can go to church every Sunday and pay our tithes and pray and really leave, live and lead Godward lives at some level, but really not put ourselves on the anvil, you know, to be shaped to be formed, to be transformed. And man, that, that sucks. You know, I, I, I want more than that. I, I want, I want to get to the other side of some of my pathologies and really be able to, for the glory of God, to be able to shine less clouded, more clearly. Yep. And I know that's God's heart for us. Yep. Yeah. And the monastics, I think they had a, they had a grid for that. Yeah. Well, I, I agree. And I think this looking at conversion as, as more of an ongoing, um, um, yeah, being on the anvil, getting the, the, getting the, ore, getting the impurities burned away, 
Um, and that's a grace, you know, that's like some people might say like, oh, isn't it once and for all? Isn't it salvation forever? Sure. If you want to look at it like that, yeah, you can never lose God's love. Yes. I mean, that's what gives me the courage to go back on the anvil, you know, without that, what, what, what possible motivation could I possibly have to get punished like that? Not, not punished, but you know, like to, to try to do my work, you know, um, it's not a self-improvement project. It's a, it's a opening, trying to open myself up to as much love that God has for me. And it's much, you know, union, communion, I think, um, well, I, I know we're running out of time, but let's, if we can, let's hit um, obedience. Yeah. And I, I, I like, I really do like this very, like, it's not this, it's this. And so for every chapter, that's how you describe it. So obedience is not seizing the moment, but surrendering the control. So say more about that. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Because that's so evocative to me. Right. Uh, and you can thank our, our mutual friend, David Zimmerman, for wow. coming up with that way of putting it uh, on those subtitles. But there are, these, there are these three core needs that were articulated so beautifully by a more modern monk named Thomas Keating. And he talked about these core parts of our humanity, the need for power and control the need for safety and security, the need for approval and affection. We've kind of been dancing around some of those themes, but this chapter on obedience really takes aim at, at this issue of power and control because it's one of the ways that we try to feel safe in the world. It's one of the ways that we try to feel valuable in the world and, and some of our personalities are more drawn toward, you know, one or the others, but we all have a relationship with all three of these things. And even if we're not a domineering personality, we all try to control our, our worlds in certain ways and try to meet that need outside of God. It's not good. Right. It's really not. And so that's of course a, a, a true need for obedience. That is a true need for surrender. And this, this gets super practical for me too. I mean, it sounds like a big idea and it is, but again, going back to kind of that, that quiet time engagement in the morning with God, it's like, Lord, this is what I see happening in my day. This is what I want to happen in my day. But I'm telling you right now, I'm peeling my fingers off of it. Yeah. I want you to hold it. Yeah. I'm not going to be passive and I'm, I'm not going to be vested in it. I'm going to do my best to walk out the things I think that are important. But, but you've got to got you've got to have this for me, and you've got to have me in this. And so I am really looking for practical, tangible ways to yield my own will to you. And part of that is so that I can be responsive to stuff that you may have for me in this day that I don't know about. Right? Right. I have agendas and opportunities and there may be needs and, you know, uh, wounded travelers lying on the side of the road that if, if I'm so committed to my agenda, I am going to miss it. Right. So allowing God to 
meet my need for power and control, by which I mean to, to empower me to be faithful without empowering me to be in control. That, mm. that kind of mm. Yeah, and I think, you know, this is where, I think this is the one of the true, I mean, there's maybe several, there's not a lot, but this is one of the true tests of faith. Like, can I, can I recognize where I'm trying to grasp control, which is going to be a lot, like when I start to really pay attention to that, and then can I practice releasing it in whatever way that means, you know, and that, so like maybe for me, am I getting defensive? Well, yes. why am I, you know, instead of reflexively, uh, I mean, I just got so defensive with my wife about something so small and stupid and I really got so defensive and then it's like well if I was someone if I was my own coach or my own spiritual director I would just want to get curious about that like like what's okay what was underneath that and like what were you what was that image management or like why did you um it's okay oh it's okay but like what would it look like next time to notice um why it's so important that I get a 25 out of 25 on the grocery list and I don't get anything wrong when I bring it home, you know, like why, why is that anyway? Do you know what I mean? Like, like, um, and I think we have to drill down to that, that level. Don't you think of like, I am trying to control almost everything, people's perceptions of me, my own agenda for the day. And so how do we, and so this is my question after my long ramble. Oh my gosh, I'm sorry. Um, but uh, how do we start to learn to release the grip of control? We learn by doing it badly. Yes. Yes. I think Amen. so, you know, really, I, I think that the, the spiritual practice that <laughs> helps us surrender is the, the practice of failing. Yes. Regularly. And I love the way you described that um, that act of noticing and being curious mm-hmm. about our, about our stuff rather than just being angry about our stuff or deflecting about our stuff. Mm-hmm. But, you know, for it to be kind of okay, like recognizing I'm in process, of course I'm in process. Mm-hmm. And God isn't put off, obviously, mm-hmm. by my mess. Um, so we can afford to be curious about it with ourselves and then lo and behold we can be curious about it with others yeah this is a little bit of a rabbit but just um it was a big aha for me recognizing that the way i am with myself is exactly the same way i am with other people because i'd sort of convinced myself that they were different yeah you know i i i I come across as a really affable Uh person but i'm super critical with myself and i thought that both of those were real and it was like holy crap no i really am as judgmental with other people as i am with myself i just i just mask it really well yes (laughs) so that was a big uh aha um that is profound actually that that is profound yes yeah so that's a place for surrender so I really am being honest when I say I think by doing it badly, we learn to recognize what the false self looks like. Uh, we we feel the pain of it again. 
sometimes we have to grieve the pain that that causes someone that we love. Mm-hmm. And then that just brings us to a place of brokenness yeah. and saying, God, it's amazing that you still love me because this is still really wrong. And, and I'm attached in ways I don't fully understand to this dysfunctional behavior. Mm-hmm. Can you help me with that? And God says, yeah, as a matter of fact, I can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good news. I mean, that's good news. You know? That's good news. That's good news. Um, <laughs> well, Jerome, this, this was just so good for me. I, I'm so glad we finally got to connect so grateful to Dave Zimmerman for uh, sending me your book and then for this conversation. Oh my gosh. So uh, your book is called Gravitas, The Monastic Rhythms of Healthy Leadership by Jerome Daly. Uh, I know you're also a leadership coach. And so how else can people get a hold of you and follow your work? Yeah, for sure. Well, I guess the most central location is my website, which is thrive9solutions.com. Thrive nine, the number nine, um, solutions.com. And, you know, so folks can, uh, see a little bit of what I'm doing there. There's a page of resources uh, on the website that mirrors the book, uh, so that if folks kind of want to get downloads of forms or descriptions of various practices, they're right there and available. And, uh, folks can see some of what I'm doing with spiritual retreats and working with leaders and teams and you know, sign up for all the normal stuff, newsletters, Facebook, et cetera. All right. Well, again, Jerome, thanks for coming on. This this is so good. I feel like we're, we could have talked for hours and hours. Um, Indeed. Uh, just so much good stuff. So thank you for carving out time and um, uh, blessings to you and the rest of your day. Thank you, Steve. I really valued this. Hey friends, thanks so much for listening to This Good Word. If you love this podcast, there's three ways that you can support my work. One is by jumping on Patreon, patreon.com slash thisgoodword. You can become a patron at various levels and get lots of good free stuff, including free tickets to any live events that I do, signed books, and other stuff. The second way is to share your favorite episodes via Twitter and Facebook. Uh, email, however it is that you share content. Let some friends know that you love it. And then third is to go on iTunes and leave a rating or a review. So thanks so much, my friends. We are dust and breath. We are limited and limitless. We are human and holy, and we are in it together.